Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Our October Cheshvan sustainability challenge in the green team uh, was eat less meat. We didn't say eat less meat and poultry. Maybe we should have said that. We just said eat less meat. Um, and so in conjunction with that, we're having two talks Tuesday, two days ago. If you didn't hear it, feel free to go listen to Rabbi Elliot Dorf, who actually talked about uh, the Jewish background and halacha, Jewish law pertaining to um, suffering of animals and minimize suffering to animals. And we're following that up tonight with a talk by Melissa Hoffman, who is our guest, but returning because she grew up at Temple Beth Am. Um, and they're her parents, Susan and Michael Hoffman, proud parents. Um, uh, Melissa will tell you about her organization. She works for Jewish Initiative for Animals and Farm Forward. Um, and uh, her talk tonight is going to be about, I, I keep forgetting it, uh, communal eating, a Jewish response to factory farming. But that's not exactly that. Okay. And no, you know, and, asked, got it, got it. Yeah. and she's going to talk about how the Jewish community eats, how we as individuals eat. Um, we have up until uh, 9 p.m. is a hard stop time. We don't need to fill that time. Melissa um, will talk for a while, and then there will be plenty of time for Q&A. Like I said to her, will I be able to ask you about humane eggs? Am I? Are they really okay? So there will be time for questions like that later on. Melissa. Well, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Thank you so much to Rabbi Havivi for reaching out and inviting me to speak. Um, I'm I'm also glad that I think at least some of you have gotten to go to a class on Jewish animal ethics from Rabbi Dorf a couple of days ago. So that's kind of a perfect primer. I guess I'll, pl- I'll plug his class um, for the kinds of contemporary issues that we're going to be addressing today. And then I encourage you to, um, you know, think back on if you got a chance to explore those texts and consider the opportunities and the challenges of applying them to our current setting. Um, also, if we were in person, I would encourage you to kind of, we'd probably do like a go around. I'd encourage you to introduce yourselves and uh, let me know what brings you to the class. So feel free to do that in the chat. If you want to click the chat function at the bottom and say who you are, especially if there's maybe more than one person with you, where you are. Uh, and I will go ahead and introduce myself. So uh, as Avi said, I'm Melissa Hoffman. I direct the Jewish Initiative for Animals, or JIFA for short, um, which is a national project dedicated to helping Jewish communities think critically about the way that we should interact with animals uh, and to help communities align their food choices with their Jewish values. My umbrella organization is called Farm Forward, which does animal, food, and farming advocacy to support more sustainable forms of agriculture. So I kind of do that, but specialize uh, within the Jewish community. So at JIFA, one primary thing that we do besides create and curate educational programs is we do direct consultation with Jewish institutions and events. So figuring out uh, where their products come from, Um, how to set up supply chains and dining plans and menus that support more sustainable ways of growing food, 
and specifically alternatives to factory farming. And we're going to kind of get into the details of what that really means. And the need for an initiative like ours, when we started it about uh, six years ago, was clear. You know, in the vast majority of our institutions, we have few principles or standards guiding what crosses our thresholds in our communities in terms of food, right? Like beyond requiring a kosher certification and most institutions today, right, can adhere to a kosher policy because kosher products are generally available. Otherwise, it's kind of an anything goes policy in many places. Um, I think that is slowly uh, by necessity changing uh, as people understand the impacts of our food choices on not just animals, but vulnerable populations of people, on public health, on the environment, and climate. So uh, as part of our talk today, I will give you a sense for what industry looks like today for the vast majority of animal agriculture, including kosher. Um, we're going to touch on the various social and environmental issues that are also critical to understanding how the food system works. And then I will give you a kind of overview of how our work is done in service of changing culture and changing practice uh, within Jewish institutional life. How does that sound? Good. All right. So um, actually, before I share my screen, a little bit about me. I am, I am, as Avi said, I grew up at Temple Beth Am. I am now based out of Denver, Colorado. Uh, I'm originally from LA. I've also spent several years in the Boston area where I completed a master's degree in animal welfare and public policy. If you didn't know a degree like that existed, I also didn't know until shortly before I did it. Um, and in my spare time outside of my work at JIFA, I am completing rabbinical school at AJRCA, which you might be familiar with. And um, I've worked in Jewish institutions virtually my entire adult life. Uh, I've cared about animal welfare virtually my entire life. But, you know, maybe like some of you, I didn't grow up in close proximity to farms. I didn't have much exposure to how we raise farmed animals. And I certainly didn't hear about this topic as a you know primary concern in my Jewish communities until relatively recently. So I feel lucky to be working on this issue at a time when it's not only you know critical that we develop a robust response, but at a time when I think communities are really ready to do that work. Um, and so it's also my understanding that Temple Beth Am, like other communities this year, is digging into what it means to be inspired by the spirit of Shemitah, right? And so our ancient agricultural laws that don't halachically apply to us outside the land of Israel, but are kind of timely nonetheless, because we're living in this moment when we're really threatening the viability of our land and ecosystems and their ability to sustain us. Um, so I'm actually going to start with that, with Shemitah. Uh, give me one second and share my screen. And all right. Can everyone see that? Thumbs up. Great. Okay. So what's what's kind of powerful, I'm gonna skip ahead here. Um, powerful about Shemitah, right, is it gives us this um, model for food justice and 
is in a kind of similar way to Shabbat, I think one of the less anthropocentric, more ecocentric practices that we have honoring every piece of what makes it possible to keep our food system thriving. And these are um, brushing past this very, very, very surface level. These are the seven aspects of Shemitah that I'm going to ask you to boil down to a few categories here. So we have, right, the, the main thing, letting the land lie fallow, not working the land in the seventh year after six years of cultivating and working the land and gleaning. We let it lie fallow to avoid overproduction and overconsumption. The second piece is we let the needy among the people eat of the land, right? Protecting vulnerable people and making sure that the poor have access. And then we have this third piece, right? What is left after the needy uh, eat from the land is we leave the rest to the wild animals. So even the animals, even the more than human creatures are part of this equation. Uh, And so that was all Exodus and Deuteronomy. We have these other components of Shemitah, the remission of debts, um, the freeing of slaves, and not just the freeing of slaves, but providing um, the restitution, the compensation to people who have been in these uh, in these positions of um, of servitude to ensure that when they re-enter society, right, they're able to stand on their own. They're able to to be um, on par with everybody else. And then finally, there's this ritual component of gathering and reading Torah. In the seventh year, we're actually supposed to on Sukkot, right? Get together, hear the Torah, and that's kind of the that's that's one of the um, the practices that sort of solidifies our communal dedication to this practice. So I want to actually open it up to you all. And this is not a trick question. I promise. It's it's just kind of boiling it down. If you were to think about what relationships are we dealing with here? What does Shemitah ask us to think about? Relationships between who and who? You can feel free to unmute. This is, to me, it's, this is Gary. Um, it's between relationship between people to people. There's God, people to God. And there's the people then to, to animals. If you have all three factors involved. Yeah. And what, maybe one more. Who else or what else? With, with the land? Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The land. Right. So awesome. Thank you. Um, So we have these various relationships that we might boil down to human to human. Right. And there's kind of a a power dynamic that's acknowledged here between people who own land, um, people in those days who had uh, ownership over other members of society. Uh, and in some, you know, around the Seder table during Passover, we acknowledge that slavery exists still today. So we still do have to think about um, servitude in similar forms in our current society. There's the relationship between people and land, of course. And there's a relationship between people and animals. Animals are included just in the same way that they're included in the laws of Shabbat. They're included in the laws of Shemitah. So All of this is perhaps a reflection of maybe what the ideal relationship is between us and the divine, right? This is the kind of model for a just, resilient food system where every aspect of the system, whether it's the land, the workers, 
those with less access to food. There's this radical and, and this radical inclusion of animals um, is brought repeatedly into balance every seven years. So we're going to focus today on animal agriculture because it is kind of the nexus for multiple imbalances, right? Multiple issues beyond animal suffering that we are going to focus on that, um, which includes workers, which includes rural communities, et cetera. And even though I'm going to guess that most of us are not farmers, we have a direct link to that food system. And so further, how we eat as a community has a big impact on what this system looks like currently and what it can look like. Um, so let's try to understand the way we grow our food, uh, the impact that it's having on the world and all communities of life in the spirit of Shemitah, even though we're not directly working the land. All right. So why focus on animal agriculture? Because the food system is a lot grander than many of us tend to think, right? Um, I wanna share these kind of sweeping statistics to help us get a grasp of the scale that we're talking about. But animal agriculture takes up about one third of the land on our planet. That's the ice-free land. Uh, and for, you know, for the sake of our talk today, we're focusing on animal agriculture, um, but we should keep in mind that animal agriculture also necessitates a huge amount of crop cultivation, a huge amount of harvesting sea animals from the ocean. So there's a lot that goes into this system sustaining itself. Um, it is also causing a decline in ocean systems globally. So that's really significant if something is large enough to be impacting our ocean systems independently of climate change. However, the animal agriculture system we have today is also a top contributor to climate change. Um, I want to mention these last two. We're not going to be able to go into all of these in depth, but it is important to note that animal agriculture is a major source of new pandemics and is a major contributor to racialized worker exploitation. And I'm really happy to talk in more detail when we get to questions um, in more detail about these different topics. These are issues that we have written about that we do tend to talk about in our education. And then the figure to the right kind of powerfully in illustrates the staggering number of the relative mass of Earth's farmed mammals compared to humans and wild animals. So this is from the uh, Biomass Distribution on Earth, published by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which assessed all life on the planet and found that 96% of mammal biomass on Earth is us and our livestock, right? This doesn't include birds, so we, there's a lot of birds also um, that are not in this graphic, but just to give you a sense, 70% of birds on earth are also domesticated. And most of them are the, the chickens, the poultry we consume. All right, animal agriculture today. So we slaughter around 70 billion land animals globally. And those are mostly chickens. Um, sea animals are probably somewhere in the trillions. We don't really know because we don't measure them by individuals. We measure them by, by tonnage, um, by mass. So it's, it's, 
it's kind of impossible to know, but it's estimated to be in the trillions. More than 95%, uh, it's actually probably somewhere, you'll see different estimates for this, but ranging from at least 99 95% to 99% of animals in the US are raised on large industrial farms. So the technical name for this is confined animal feeding operation or CAFOs. And then animal agriculture, as it applies to our concern for the environment, our concern for climate, um, here's another range uh, that you'll find in various places. And it really just depends on what you're accounting for. So it's estimated that 14.5% of greenhouse gas emissions uh, is, is, is contributed by animal agriculture globally. There's also estimates as high as 50 or 51%. So that is when you, when you factor in aspects of agriculture, like what's called land use change, deforestation, plus emissions from the crops that are used to feed animals and from transportation and processing, right? All of these things use up energy, entail the use of fossil fuels, um, you end up with two very different estimates. It's probably somewhere higher than 14.5, probably significantly higher, and probably somewhere in between the two. So I'm going to shift us to talk a little bit about animal welfare. Um, there is, you know, a robust field of animal welfare science that we're not going to get into detail here, but informs a lot of the work that we do in our advocacy. So just a a gloss on what is welfare. When we talk about proper welfare for animals, we're uh, considering adequate housing, proper food, healthy environments, um, getting animals treatment when they're sick, and finally, freedom, freedom of movement, I think is what it says, but it's cut off for me. Um, and then we also have to consider freedom from mental distress, right? Freedom from uh, freedom from confinement can also mean freedom to do natural behaviors. And then you'll also hear me use the term higher welfare, which is really a, a relative term. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to X out of this real quick so I can read my own slide. Um, but it's a relative term referring to farmed animal operations that give animals or it can also be referring to products um, where animals led meaningfully better lives than those on factory farms. All right. So by sheer numbers, uh, we are going to talk about chickens a bit here. And I know that a lot of questions that come up around, you know, like what, what is higher welfare? What is the standard of welfare? Um, you're kind of looking at it right here. So the standard of welfare is determined by companies themselves, the freedom to determine what constitutes humane is left up to companies largely. Um, there are certain there are certain practices that uh, can be dictated state by state. So you might be familiar with in California, Prop 2, which then became strengthened by Prop 12, um, which gave animals, you know, certain certain protections uh, that were expanded on what we would call the floor, the floor of welfare, which is, you know, kind of standard factory farming practices. So this is what you'll, this is what you'll see at any kind of standard factory farm. Um, 
docking tails, debeaking chickens. Um, we call all of these things mutilations of animals, um, often to just manage the fact that they are kept in close quarters and uh, and have you know frustration being held in close quarters. Um, so for deep beaking chickens, that's you know that's a practice that's done because chickens will get frustrated being close um, in close quarters with one another and will start pecking at each other. Um, there's also standard practices artificially inseminating and continuously impregnating animals for breeding and production purposes. So this is this is common in um, the dairy industry. Dairy cows will be repeatedly impregnated and they go for about four or five pregnancy cycles um, before they are slaughtered. But lesser known um, forms of artificial insemination happen with poultry. So your turkeys, your average turkey, your broad-breasted white turkey can't mate naturally and they will be artificially inseminated to reproduce. Um, also common in the industry is killing billions of surplus animals because we've now we've we've now created a system in which you know laying hens, for example, and chickens raised for meat are two separate industries. They really have nothing to do with one another at this point. Um, so when egg laying hens give lay lay eggs that become male chicks. They're really not considered useful to the industry and they are disposed of. Um, and then there's also the constraining, the, what, what you might be most familiar with in the context of knowing what a factory farm is, is constraining movement of animals. So this can be fairly extreme for pigs, um, for laying hens in particular. They're pretty densely packed into crates and cages and can lead to, as I talked about already, maladaptive behaviors. Um, I want to focus for a minute on chickens because not because not just because of the status that they hold in Jewish cuisine, um, but because they're also some of the lesser known welfare issues that we do a lot of awareness raising and advocacy around. So um, you'll see on the right, this is a comparative graphic of what chickens used to look like and what they look like today. And by sheer numbers, chicken and other poultry suffer more in industrial farms than any other animal. We slaughter about 50 to 60 billion birds every year. And we need to think about, you know, like maybe back to your grandparents and how they raised chickens. Maybe they even slaughtered their own chickens, depending on where they came from, um, if they ate chickens. So the chickens that my grandparents and your grandparents ate and potentially raised um, were different from the chickens that we have today. So traditional breeding of birds for meat and egg production used to occur in pretty normal ways, right? You have the male bird, you have a female bird. They mate and they produce offspring that have the same uh, characteristics that are similar to their to their parents, right? And these healthy lines are now known as standard bred or heritage birds. Today, chickens and also turkeys are raised using intensive hybrid breeding technology, and they are then put in highly controlled confinement systems. They're given feed supplements because they are grow they are now grown to such a fast and large size that their bodies really can't keep up with the, with the rest of them. So they suffer from 
unnecessary and painful problems with skeletal development, um, compromised immune systems, heart and lung function is compromised, they're obese, and other issues. Um, I want to stop there because we are going to talk for a minute about fish, and then we're going to get into some of probably the, the more practical questions that you have around sourcing and purchasing um, and the things that matter on a day-to-day basis for most consumers. So I want to stop there and see if y'all have any questions. Yeah. Um, question for you regards to cows. How, I mean, my, my wife and I don't eat a lot of meat, but we do, I drink milk. And how bad is that regarding to the, the I mean, I mean, you, I mean, I know they, they get milk, they get, I mean, it's just, they, they, they have to, they give, they milk until they, I don't know how long it lasts for the, until they have to get re, re, um, re you know, um, to get re-inseminated. But I just don't know, how long is the process for a, a cow and how long does that last and how bad is it for the, for the cow, for the, for the, in the milking process? I used to milk cows in Europe, but that's a long, long time ago. Yeah, no, good question. Um, so dairy cows in the U.S. will typically go through about five pregnant, four to five pregnancy cycles, four to five years, and then they will be sent to slaughter once they're conti- once they're deemed not as not as productive, which is usually after about five cycles. Um, and dairy cows are also, you know, they are they are processed, so they are also turned into meat. They are a different; they're considered to be a different quality meat. So hamburger meat is typically where um, where dairy cows will will go for processing into the market. Are you asking also about the welfare conditions in general? Yeah, I would assume so. Yeah, I mean, they're not the, when you're driving up the five, the five, you're not seeing dairy cows. That's cattle cows. Yeah, so it's, it'll depend. Um, What's what's happening more and more in California, in particular, um, also in parts of Oregon, are the proliferation of what's called mega dairies. So we we care about the quality of beef more than we care about the quality, or, or I should say, beef from cattle raised for um, cuts of steak and other forms of beef than we do about the beef that comes from dairy cows. So uh, in in certain ways, this this translates to how we keep dairy cows. So it's a little, it's more convenient and it's also cheaper to keep dairy cows in closer confinement. And so it's more common that you'll see in these larger dairies, um, animals that are kept indoors or tethered um, because it's not as important that they be out ranging like animals that will be raised for beef. Thank you. All right. And I wanted to just give you a sense. We get asked a lot about fish and how that plays into factory farms. So aqua farms are starting to look a lot like factory farming, except it's kind of the wild west of factory farming in that there are few regulations for a lot of these fish farms. Um, you may have, if you've, if you've read a little about this issue, you may know that there's kind of a distinction between the farms that are set up um, in, in actual ecosystems that are uh, water-based, so ocean-side farms versus land-based farms. And um, basically different issues are posed by different models. But 
what we need to what we need to consider here is that two thirds or more of the wild fish populations, as it currently stands, are over harvested, and when we create fish farms, um, we're often creating farms that are for uh, fish that are higher up on the food chain because those are the fish we like to eat: salmon, um, tilapia. Not as high on the food chain, but animals that generally need to eat smaller forms of fish, smaller forms of seafood. So in order to keep animals alive in fish farms, we're often going out and getting uh, magnitudes more <laughs> sea life from the ocean to be able to sustain those fish on farms. When we go out into the ocean and we fish these days, there's what's called bycatch, which is pulling in non-target species. And for every animal that is a target species, the bycatch rate can be as high as 98%, which means that for every two target species, 98 other animals, fish, turtles, um, birds, dolphins, etc., are being thrown back into the ocean, either dead or dying. Um, and these are this is also um, not factored into the poundage, you know, the tonnage that were that that is reported. And over the past 10 years. Sorry, I'm going to X out again. Over the past 10 years, reports indicate that overharvesting poses the biggest threat to stable ocean habitat and global fisheries, which climate change is only exacerbating. So we do tend to talk about climate change as being one of the biggest threats to the ocean. Um, but in fact, you know, we're learning more and more that overharvesting is just as big, if not the biggest concern we should have. And climate change is only exacerbating that. So I've thrown a lot at you. I promise this is heading in the direction of what we all can do. Um, but again, I wanted to give us a sense of how these things play out for us as consumers when we're going into the supermarket, um, thinking about how can we make the best choices possible. Um, at Jiffa, we're not really doing a lot of consumer to consumer education because of the consultation that I'm charged with doing is directly with institutions. So I'm concerned with the, ch the choices that we make as a community rather than the ones that we make individually. But obviously, this education is super important for everybody and it translates into individual behaviors and behaviors that uh, people adopt in their households. So I was going to do a little spiel about welfare claims and the kinds of things that people might see on packaging. Um, this won't include kosher yet. We will get there. Uh, but I will instead play a video from my colleague, Andrew, who very eloquently talks about these issues. And I will share my screen. Was there a hand? Did I see a hand up? Yeah, go ahead. Melissa, could you just comment briefly on the ecological impact uh, for land-based versus ocean-based aqua farming? Um, I, I mean, I can I can get you all resources to learn more in detail about what that entails. I really don't remember off the top of my head. Um, some of the details that'll be pertinent here, but you know, we have to think about things like not just the the ecological impacts for let's say a oceanside um, fish farm will have more to do with 
you know, if you're treating those animals with drugs, because fish farming like CAFO farming on land will entail the use of antibiotics most of the time, um, we have to worry about animals that are being treated with drugs, commingling with wild sea life. We have to worry about um, animals that are genetically modified, getting out of their pens and commingling with other sea life. Um, there are examples of this. And again, I'm sorry, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I can send you articles about salmon that have been genetically modified, getting out of their pens and posing a really serious risk to healthy populations of salmon in the same area. So these are the kinds of things that we have to, to worry about on land. Um, that is where some, there's, there's some real, uh, issues with welfare when it comes to, uh, this is kind of gross, but <laughs> there's an issue with what's called sea lice. So animals that are held in close confinement, like animals on land, like chickens and cows that are held in close confinement will have compromised immune systems. They get diseases and fish will end up having a problem with what's called sea lice, where they have um, essentially parasites that eat their flesh and you have uh, you have animals really suffering under those conditions. Um, there's there's a lot of new advocacy coming out now around fish welfare because of the proliferation of aqua farms. It is the fastest growing part of the sector. So now there's going to be increasing concern with fish welfare, especially since there's virtually no regulations around fish welfare. Um, there's very little for other species, but there's virtually none for fish. I hope I touched on some of what you were hoping for. Yeah, Michael. How much of the availability, uh, literally all around the country, would you, uh, of fresh fish like salmon, for instance, that is farmed salmon, uh, have to do with this sort of irre- um, unregulated aspect of the fish industry? Because, I mean, you could think back um, 10 or 15 years ago uh, here in central Texas, you might not be able to get fresh fish uh, in the, in the I mean, I know we're near the, the Gulf coast, 150 miles, but you would not always see it. And now all virtually all the supermarkets have literally salmon, you know, farm salmon, at least sometimes wild. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's booming. Um, there's, you know, it's kind of wild that there's going to be salmon farm. I think one of the largest land-based salmon farms is either open or planned to open in Florida. I mean, the, and the amount of energy that will have to go into sustaining that farm just on a operational level is massive, but, you know, there's demand. And so there will continue to be the, um, the, the proliferation of, of aqua farms and probably more so um, land-based farms if they can, you know, continue to get the kind of um, the kind of support and infrastructure for that. A good question. Yeah. Um, I guess I wanted you to ask for you to say anything more about eggs and if there's any 
like the way that you'd consider a humane uh, way of, of, of having them. Yeah. So let me play, uh, let me play the video from Andrew and then we'll see if you still have that question. And okay. I'm going to address the intersection of humane welfare claims, certifications and kosher, which may also pertain to your question. So let me share again, pull up this video. Hopefully it will play without any glitches. Humane washing, like green washing, is an effort by, in this case, the meat industry to market animal products to conscientious consumers using deceptive packaging and labeling claims to promote the illusion of animal well-being while concealing the fact that most animals raised for food are raised on factory farms. Most people think natural means that animals are raised without drugs, hormones, or antibiotics. Um, and most people also believe that all natural products should guarantee that there are no pesticides or GMOs used. Um, in reality, all natural uh, meat means that no artificial additives were added to the products after slaughter. Simple as that. It doesn't say anything about what happens while animals are alive. Animals can be raised in the worst possible conditions and be labeled as all natural. There's actually no legal definition for humanely raised. Uh, meat companies are free to define what it means to be humanely raised, and unfortunately, the USDA lets them. Foster Farms is a big national uh, poultry company, and they describe their chickens as humanely raised. And over the last you know, 10 years, they've had multiple undercover investigations showing really egregious cruelty on their farms. Birds being scalded alive while their slaughterhouses or unwanted birds being suffocated in plastic bags really the worst conditions you can imagine. And that's perfectly legal to describe those products as humanely raised because Foster Farms chooses to define humanely raised in a particular way and they meet that criteria. People who buy organic products assume that the organic label indicates humane treatment of animals and that you know animals are raised on pasture. Um, you know, in reality, organic really just means organic feed. Now there are some minimal provisions for animal welfare in the organic program. You know, ultimately, animals raised on organic farms may have only a little more space than a conventional industrial operation. And this is something that we had hoped to change. In 2015, the Secretary of Agriculture and the Obama administration had adopted a new set of rules called the Organic Livestock and Poultry Practices Rules, which would have significantly strengthened the animal welfare standards in the organic program. And unfortunately, those, those rules were rescinded in the Trump administration in 2016. Federal law prohibits chickens from being fed hormones. So when you see a chicken company call their, their products hormone-free, it's more about giving us the false impression that their products are somehow greener or healthier. Um, it's like a paint company telling their customers that their products are lead-free, even though lead has been banned in paint since the 1970s. But yeah, it's lead-free, that's a true statement, but it doesn't mean anything. It, it means that you follow federal law. Now, hormones are more commonly used in cattle and pig farming to promote growth or in dairy farming to increase milk production. 
Um, but even for those products, when you see hormone-free, it's important to know that the USDA isn't rigorously testing products to verify those claims are true. The USDA isn't testing every product to say, yeah, we, we, we know that there isn't XYZ hormone, ractopamine, for example. So you might see chicken meat labeled as cage-free. And while that sounds good, again, it doesn't actually mean anything. That's because virtually all chickens raised for meat, except those used for breeding, are raised in large, mostly cramped barns and kept on the floor. Um, there's no, no reason to think that you know, a, a chicken raised for meat is going to be anything other than cage-free. For egg-laying hens, cage-free likely indicates that the hens were not raised in what are described as battery cages. Basically, these wire cages with you know, potentially as many as a dozen or more hens crowded close together and unable to move for their entire lives. So getting hens out of battery cages is, is important and, and does reduce or can reduce their suffering. Um, but getting hens out of battery cages is really just the first step. You know, battery cages are the worst of the worst, so it's good that we end that practice. But just because an egg carton is labeled cage-free doesn't mean that the hens were raised in good condition. Most consumers, I think understandably, um, believe that the term free-range means that animals were raised outdoors on pasture. The term free-range, however, has no definition for cattle or pigs, um, and it's only loosely defined for birds. USDA defines free-range as birds given outdoor access, but they don't say how much outdoor space a bird needs or for how long the birds need to be outside every day. Um, and in practice, you know, a free-range chicken may simply mean that a farmer installs doggy doors on the side of a 400-foot-long barn and opens the doggy doors an hour a day, and some chickens may or may not go outside. You know, from my perspective, the most deceptive thing about free-range is that for most modern chickens, you know, they've been bred to grow so fast and so large that many of them can hardly walk. So it doesn't matter really how much access they have to the outdoors, you know, moving more than a couple of feet may be too painful for them. So it's very unlikely that they're going to use a range and frolic on pasture if they can hardly walk. If this seems confusing, it is. There are people whose full-time job it is to make us think that their products are humane and natural. Humane washing is a marketing technique that companies use to hide the truth. Their products come from industrial operations. Now, my job would be a lot easier if I could just say, you know, go to the store and buy this one thing. Look for this one certification. I wish it were that simple. You know, if we're really going to change how we raise animals in this country, we're going to have to be more selective and we're going to have to eat fewer of them. So when friends and family ask me, what can I do? The easiest answer I can give them is to you know, eat less meat, first and foremost. And second is if they are going to eat meat, to make sure that they're buying the best products possible and identify those small number of certifications that really are meaningful and verify that animals were given lives worth living. Okay. So um, that uh, that was part of our more recent campaigning. Farm Forward is doing some work to expose what we call humane washing, which you just learned about. Um, sorry for the ominous music that we didn't choose that. Uh, hopefully the information itself, though, was helpful. And, you know, now now you kind of get a sense for what we're up against when we go into the store as consumers, right? We are up against companies that, you know, know that they are, um, they, they need to appeal to folks who adhere to 
broadly held anti-cruelty principles. We don't as consumers want to go into the store knowing that we are supporting these kinds of farming practices. And yet this is really what accounts for 95, again, 95 plus percent of what we're finding in grocery stores. So um, I'll pause for a minute and just see, does anyone have any questions about some of the claims that were brought up? I'm sure if you go into your stores, um, you know, you can easily find a lot of those claims on most of the products that you're looking at. So I'm curious to hear, too, if this was new information or if this was something that you kind of sensed was there, but got got clarified through some of what was presented in the video. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he mentioned that there's a few um, certifications that you can trust or that are better. Um, so what are you going to maybe later tell us or can you tell us now? Yeah, so I mean, what I, I'll say again, you know, what we currently recommend is not necessarily targeted at individuals, right? I work with institutions, and so when we're working with institutions, we try to give them as much information as possible to help them understand what's available to them. And it's true, there are what's called third-party animal welfare certifications that do independent audits of farms, um, and farms are certified under their program. Now, one of the limitations that we run up against in working with Jewish communities is that a very small percentage of farms are actually certified by these programs. Not all of the programs, if you really look into their standards, necessarily align with the kinds of practices that meet your values. Um, a great example of this might be that, uh, or rather is, that you just learned about the issue of chicken genetics, right? There's no certification out there that currently requires at all, you know, all levels, sometimes these certifications have multiple levels, um, currently requires that chickens have healthy genetics. And this is something that advocacy groups are trying to change and trying to strengthen within those certification agencies. But until we have more rigorous certification agencies and until more farms are certified under those standards, um, you know, the issue really comes down to what Andrew was talking about, which is you have to do the work. You have to do a lot of the research. And that's really that's really rough. Right. That's really kind of unreasonable to ask of most consumers. So that is where someone like me comes in and helps people understand what they're looking at, helps them navigate labeling. Um, but it is it is meant to be deceptive. It is meant to dupe you into thinking that this is something that meets your values when it doesn't necessarily. So if you uh, if you look at our website, and we'll get into this in just a minute, we do have animal welfare standards, some of which are uh, in alignment with some of those certification standards, some of which are not because, here's another limitation, certifications that are uh, third party that specifically certified for animal welfare standards don't currently certify kosher meat. They certify kosher um, eggs, though very, very few. In fact, I've only found one that is um, certified both by an animal welfare certification and certified, I believe, OU. Um, and there's virtually no dairy certified by both a kosher certification and third-party animal welfare certification. 
So our, our options here are really limited, um, especially when I'm working with institutions that require uh, products to be kosher certified. So I'm going to share again and talk about some of the advocacy work that we've been doing recently, which is very exciting because we are getting some Jewish leadership involvement in calling out this issue and getting some traction and putting this back onto, I think, the the, the mainstream Jewish agenda. Um, you know, we haven't had a robust conversation about what it means for animals to be industrially raised since the agriprocessors scandal back in 2000, well, between 2004 and 2008. And recently we launched a campaign that calls attention to the phenomenon of kosher humane washing, which is the phenomenon of kosher certifications having an effect, what we call a halo effect on consumers, um, where consumers assume that because it's kosher certified that animals were treated better. Now we've had about 250 Jewish leaders from around the country and beyond sign onto a statement saying, we acknowledge that there is a gulf between what we expect of a kosher certification and our values. And we call upon institutions everywhere to adopt practices that are more sustainable, more humane. And the primary way that we're advocating for people to do that is by adopting practices that drastically reduce the amount of animal products sourced and served within our communities. And also um, there is a there, there is a strategy that I'll talk about in a minute called serving, we call it default veg, but what it means is serving plant-based meals by default. So what do we see when we usually sign up for an event that serves food? I don't know if any of you all are, are like vegan or vegetarians, but you'll have you'll have noticed this, I'm sure. You see a registration form, right? And you might see that there is an opt-in box for getting a special meal. Who's who here has seen that? Right? Have you seen that? It could it might be it might be some other special meal, but usually it's like it's the veggie meal, right? You opt into the box to get the veggie meal. And all default veg is, is flipping that norm. So it's a really simple strategy of when you create an event, when you serve food in your community, you create a registration form or there, there are other um, strategies for making plant-based the default where you're not just shifting what people are eating. You're slowly but surely shifting culture. Uh, and that is what we're really striving for because we've, you know, we've fallen into a default of serving meat, serving chicken, serving fish, uh, and people don't think about it. That's the thing about defaults, right? We don't really think about it. We just fall into it and we do it. But by going default veg, um, it it really has been shown through several case studies to reduce the amount of meat served, um, actually animal products served, I should say, by up to 80%. On average, it reduces it by 60%. And um, and these are the kinds of strategies that we're employing in communities when we um, when we work with communities that are wanting to improve their food practices. So I am happy to share more about our kosher humane washing effort, raising awareness about kosher humane washing and our efforts to get Jewish leadership speaking out more about this. 
Uh, we have a dedicated page on our website where you can learn more about the campaign. And you'll probably notice some signatories on there uh, that are names you're familiar with. I think some of Bethan's rabbis are signed on to there. So um, please feel free to learn more. This is also hot off the press. We just released some national survey data showing kind of the extent to which consumers are confused about kosher labels, which you know, only helps us bolster the argument that if we're going to have ethical practices, we need to first acknowledge that the practices we have in our institutions largely don't align with our values. That was one of the, you know, that was one of the, the, the barriers that we come across in our work. It's really hard to convince a community to change their food practices when they already think that this aligns with my values. Uh, and this is the kind of thing that we're demystifying about kosher right now. So we have a couple, as I said, a couple of ways that we work with communities to help them shift their sourcing. And all of our education, as I said, all of our educational work um, and our food sourcing consultation work is in service of this larger goal of helping institutions adopt long-term food policies uh, that shift the way that we raise food um, raise animals and eat in our country. So you can go onto our website and also find out more about the leadership circle, the Jewish leadership circle, which is a program where we work directly with institutions on shifting their, uh, their sourcing. There are two tracks, one of which is a, what we call less and better track. So institutions commit over the course of two years to sourcing at least 20% less animal products and volume across the board, across their programs. Uh, and then they also shift uh, to 100% of at least one animal product category to a higher welfare source. And you'll also find when you go onto our website what our animal welfare standards are for that program. So this is Berkeley Hillel. Um, we've, we've really targeted and worked primarily with Hillels at this point. We've also worked with, um, we've worked with, we've actually worked with a lot of different institutions prior to having our leadership circle program. Um, but this was a way for us to concentrate on specific goals. It became clear after a few years of doing this consultation work that although we, we really wanted to work with any institution that wanted to create a food policy that centers animal welfare, uh, it is much easier for us to track the goals when those are clear. So we recognize an award um, award recognition to institutions for meeting these specific goals. Uh, so Berkeley Hillel is one of the institutions that's worked with us. Um, we're currently working with Stanford Hillel. Um, we've also worked with other institutions in the LA area like ICAR and Adat Ariel. Uh, and we work with folks from across the country, really whoever wants to work with us. Um, this is Sketchpad. This is a co-working space in the Chicago area that's adopted default veg. So we've had a few adopters of this uh, food policy or food practice called default veg as well. And, you know, we've we've had really good feedback about the way in which it's implemented. Um, here's a bit. Here's a testimonial to how they've implemented it and how it's been going. 
We also use default veg as a strategy in general. So if folks are looking to meet their 20% reduction goal, they might employ default veg for some of their programs in order to meet that goal. And so, you know, thinking back to what we've just covered, um, even though we've, we've kind of normalized practices like the ones that we've just learned about and we, you know, we know that this is an entrenched system that will be difficult to change. Um, it's important to remember that these practices are in some ways relatively new. Factory farming is only a, a tiny blip on our agricultural timeline, and farming has changed more dramatically in the last two generations than it has over the last several thousand years. So we need to kind of take heart and think, this is a narrative that we might have known for our entire lives, but it's not inevitable that it continues to stay this way. And our Jewish communities, of course, have the power to ensure that this moment in history is short-lived, and it must be, right, because it's inherently unsustainable. So if there is a Shemitah-inspired practice that you adopt this year, um, Imagine this is your affirmative ritual-based practice because, like I said, we're not farmers. But I encourage you to adopt a community-wide food policy. You can call it a food covenant or a breed, right, um, that is informed by your values. It doesn't have to be limited to animal welfare, but perhaps it centers animal welfare and divests support from industrial animal agriculture. And I would be thrilled to work with Temple Beth Bomb if they would like to work with us. Uh, and I will, I will just end by talking about what I like to, I like to think about, um, in the Jewish social justice world, we tend to think a lot about that phrase, uh, you are, that it is not your job to finish the work, but you are not free to desist from it. I, I prefer to think about the, um, Talmudic phrase, in, in Kemach, in Torah. Everyone know that one? Someone know what it means? Avi, want to? If there's uh, literally no flour, there's no Torah, but it means if there's no food, then there's no Torah. Yeah, yeah. If there's literally no flour or no sustenance, there is no Torah. And I think about this one a lot because, you know, more and more today, this underlies a kind of existential issue that we face if we don't have a stable food system. We don't have a stable, you know, planetary ecosystem. We don't have Torah, right? Because we don't, we don't have traditions and culture and community because all of that depends, right? A thriving Jewish life depends on a new way of thinking and making choices about our food. Uh, and then there's the flip side. Do you remember the flip side? Avi, what's the second part of the phrase? Im ein Torah in Kemach. Right. If there is no Torah, there is no literal sustenance. And in the context of my work, um, I think about, you know, the principles of fairness and compassion that are espoused by Torah to, are, are there to help us create a more resilient and healthier food system. So I leave you with this question. What does a values based practice look like in my community? What would it mean for us every time we eat? to think about that food being aligned with the values that we hold dear in our tradition. Um, 
I'll just point you to our resources. We have, apart from the advocacy and consultation work that we do, we do have a lot of educational resources that you might find interesting. Um, we have a B'nai Mitzvah curriculum that was designed to be used either as an independent resource or as a, or in a group project. We have our institutional food sourcing guide for our leadership circle program. Um, we also have a, you know, by no, by no means exhaustive, but pretty comprehensive study guide on Jewish texts that relate to Jewish animal ethics, a lot of which you will have uh, been familiar with if you attended Rabbi Dorf's talk. And feel free to get in touch and follow us. Again, I'm Melissa. That's my email. Um, we encourage you to spread the word about the work that we do and encourage folks to donate because we cannot do this work um, without the generous support of the community. And this is also what allows me to go out and do my consultation work for free and do presentations for free. And, uh, and please follow us on social media. You can get updates on our campaign work on the educational programs that we do um, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you inviting me here, and I am free to answer any questions or comments or reflections. Yeah. Are you at liberty to say, or do you remember off the top of your head, I'm interested to know, like what kind of changes a, a place like Adat Ariel made? So they committed to the um, 20% or more reduction track, which means that we're going to be working with them. Um, I believe once they're more fully reopened on their uh, plan to reduce the volume of animal products served by at least 20% over the next two years. Yeah, Michael. What uh, what kind of uh, uh, response have you gotten, Melissa, from from synagogues uh, in in general around the country that know about this work? Are you still trying to spread the message around, or have any uh, synagogues in any communities uh, signed on to to opting out of vegetarian or Reduce, you know, any of these initiatives at this time? Yes. So we've worked with, um, I, I mentioned that the um, leadership circle was a development that happened a few years into our work. So over the years, we've worked with over, uh, I think it's over 80 institutions, um, many of which have been synagogues. And we've done consultation with them to shift their practices but the institutions that we worked with prior were often in partnership with, uh, with partner organizations. So um, Chazon, which is an a organization committed to sustainability work. Um, we worked with a lot of synagogues kind of in their ecosystem. And then we've also worked with a, uh, a more uh, vegan oriented organization called Shemaim, which used to be the Shemaim Va'aretz Institute. Um, they have a program that's called the Synagogue Vegan Challenge, which you may have heard of. And for synagogues that have participated in that program, I have come in and kind of offered to these synagogues, which participate in these programs with no uh, definitive commitment beyond participating for the year, to help them continue to do that work. 
So these are kind of good, like, <laughs> uh, f- filter filter feeders for us because we get to take institutions that are already attracted to the sustainability work, um, whether they're motivated by the climate impact or whether they're motivated by the worker justice issues and help them, you know, reach their goals through these, through these dedicated commitments in our programs. What about uh, just one follow-up question about uh, fish Uh, in do kosher, uh, kosher fish practices, have they reduced any of the factory fish farming at all in, in some of their practices? I mean, take, for instance, uh, areas like where you buy fish in in L.A., Pico Robertson, or um, I haven't checked here in San Antonio. Now, um, most of the fish, certainly the salmon, uh, uh, um, and uh, red snapper are all prepared under kosher supervision at the local kosher supermarket here. Yeah, you're going to have to do a little bit of sleuthing to find out where where the fish is coming from. But the main things that you can do without a ton of sleuthing is either eat less fish or whatever fish you do eat, eat fish that's lower on the food chain. So like salmon is not a great example of a fish that is lower on the food chain. You know, the higher up it is, the more, the more intensive it is to raise. So, um, so smaller fish, fish that don't eat other fish. uh, And then also uh, there is a resource called the um, seafood watch card, which was developed by the, um, the oh gosh, I'm blanking. What aquarium? You're muted. Monterey Bay. I I think it's Monterey Bay. The Monterey Bay Aquarium, um, which is, you know, not really, not really instructive in terms of welfare, but instructive in terms of sustainable populations of fish and knowing if you can find out how the fish was raised, if it was wild caught, where it came from, you can kind of do some compare and contrast with that resource. Yes. Right, uh, two, quick, two quick questions. Is there any movement before Orthodox conservative is more receptive to yours? Because I could see neither none of them doing or all of them doing it. And um, Flapia, where is that on the food chain? Mm-hmm. Salmon is high in the food chain in regards to yeah, tilapia. Tilapia is, is lower down and tilapia is a commonly farmed fish. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's used in conjunction with um, hydroponic agriculture. So like it can be part of a more closed system in terms of like crops that are actually being uh, fertilized by fish excrement that kind of goes in a kind of full circle loop. So there are ways of cultivating tilapia that are more sustainable than others. But again, tilapia are mostly farmed. So you have to want, you have to kind of figure out whether they come from farms that are, (laughs) that are more humane. And that's a difficult, it's a difficult task. And let me ask you again, what your first question was. I I'm making my total assumptions that Orthodox are probably not happy with this, this, this movement. I would say most Orthodox are eating a lot more meat than conservative reform, but it just because 
but I'm not saying yes or no. Is there is there a split? I mean, among most receptive reform groups and conservative groups and orthodox groups? I'm just curious what you have found. Yeah, I mean, I found that, you know, with our most of our work has not necessarily targeted orthodox communities. But that being said, um, you know, we've had some really impressive responses to our humane washing campaign um, on kosher. And we do have quite a few orthodox and open orthodox signatories on there. You know, these are folks that do typically support more progressive causes. So that's not it's not necessarily breaking into um, newer communities. But that being said, it's I think it's significant that we do have, I think, more and more orthodox voices committed to this cause, even if it doesn't end up uh, looking in practice like orthodox communities creating food policies that are default veg. It, what it might look like is you know, Orthodox communities playing a significant role in putting pressure on the USDA, let's say, to change to um, to not necessarily to change their practices, but to it would be incredibly influential for, let's say, kosher certifiers to put pressure on government agencies to say, hey, these practices don't align with what we want kosher to mean. And that could happen with enough momentum. And I think that different denominational communities are going to play different roles in how we end up seeing movement here. So we know that reform communities and more liberal communities are more ready to see this as an issue that's part of their greening, that's part of their sustainability goals, that's part of their commitment to social justice. Uh, and that's great. You know, those are going to be the communities that we we work with because those are the ones that are attracted to working with us. But one further question. How is this transformed to anything to in Israel? Did they say rejecting it, loving it? What is the response wherever you're talking to in Israel for this program? Yeah, we're not I mean, we're, we're not working directly with anyone in Israel. Um you know, I'm, I'm connect, I've been in the past connected with someone who is trying to implement uh, a more comprehensive animal welfare certification agency in Israel. Um, the issues in Israel are kind of different. So there's a lot of what is called live export. They get all, they import a lot of their meat and some of the biggest welfare concerns have to do with importing live animals. Um, so, you know, this person, for example, is wants to create a certification that is certifying, or I should say, like she has a certification that certifies meat that is raised only locally, only in the land of Israel. Yes, Michael. So have Jewish camps been uh, fertile ground for adopting uh, the, uh, you know, some of the uh, aspects of the programs that you're advocating. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Did Jewish what? Are are Jewish camps uh, amenable, and have they been willing to adopt uh, some of the programs that you're advocating? Jewish camps we have worked with in various capacities. We ran a really great um, culinary training. Uh, two of them actually for that was primarily for Jewish summer camps a few years ago. Um, 
we got great feedback on the program. We did not end up enrolling any of those camps into this program, this Jewish Leadership Circle program or Default Veg because they didn't exist yet. Uh, but we've, you know, we have relationships with these camps. We continue to work with them. And yeah, I mean, our hope is even though we don't target Jewish summer camps right now, that that will be part of the culture change we see, uh, especially since there are there are some really like impressive summer camps out there. There's um, if you're familiar with Eden Village or Eden Village West now, there's one on the West Coast um, who are committed to teaching kids about food justice through garden education and they have farms actually on their campuses. Um, These are places that are already doing a lot of the educational work to help students understand where their food comes from. So, so it is kind of fertile ground pun intended for us to be working with Jewish institutions that already do this work, but don't necessarily have a formal policy yet. Yeah. Avi. Um, Since you mentioned culinary Um, culinary initiatives. Uh, I'm not a vegetarian, but two of my kids are vegetarians. And so at synagogue meals, I am more sensitive to what the vegetarian food is than if I did not, if I were the typical meat eater who did not have those children. And I would say to have the shift to this opt-in, opt-out thing, it really requires some culinary rethinking of what vegetarian meal what vegetarian prepared communal meals look like in a Jewish context in terms of their, the, the, the thought and appeal that goes into totally. them. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, this, this was the kind of feedback we got um, from a lot of institutions that said, we, we would love to do this. And we will need some support in developing our menus in such a way that is appealing, is uh, delicious, because it's obviously possible, but there is a learning curve. Um, and happily, that's a lot of the work that we do at Jiffa as well. So I've, I've partnered with uh, actual culinary experts to deliver trainings, but some of the work that we end up doing with, um, you know, we're doing this with Stanford Hillel, which is experimenting with default veg, we're looking at their Shabbat menus and giving them feedback on how they can reword their offerings or list their offerings in a different order or serve their buffet offerings in a different order in order to appeal um, to their students. And when this is done in in sort of according to like the best practices, you know, that's when these programs are most successful because when you give someone uh, an option, but it's, it's not, you know, it's not prepared to its most robust potential and it's worded crappily on a menu, then you're not going to get a great outcome, but we, we help with that. Well, I think let's wrap it up for the evening um melissa thank you it's been very illuminating a little bit depressing you know in terms of i'm struck by the complexity of how hard it is to actually know um where what you're eating came from and how it got there very challenging um 
now I'm, you've left me confused about my, my humane eggs, you know, some company where it says you can click on this link and watch a video of the farm, the chickens frolicking happily on the farm. Um, I tried a couple times. The link didn't work, right? That farm, that farm video feed is down. So, uh, so there's a lot to think about. Um, and, uh, and I think I'd like us to, uh, I, I'm actually going to watch some of the, I'm going to ask some of the staff of our synagogue, staff and leadership, to really make sure to watch the um, uh, or listen to the um, this program, um, because it'd be very interesting to see at Beth Am if we'd be able to move the ball forward a little bit into implementing some of these initiatives communally. I, I know I'd like to see that. Thank you. And I'll just put out there, too, that when my colleagues likes to say that confusion is the first step towards movement. So allow yourselves to be confused. And also, I I want to, again, offer myself up to um, answer any questions. Uh, You can feel free to email me and uh, and there is movement. There is change happening. So I'm optimistic and I hope you all stay optimistic, too. Great. Good. Good note to end on. Thank you so much, Melissa. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for your time and sharing. We've learned a lot. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.